at 8 o'clock right here at the church. Uh, Mr. Ben Alvarez, I understand, is cooking. Uh, so uh, in spite of that, we want you to come <laughs> and, um, and have breakfast with us. And actually, men, we're going to start something different uh, beginning this, this next Saturday. And uh, we're going to start doing some uh, service projects together as men uh, as a way of building fellowship and getting some things accomplished. Uh, we're going to do some things around the church building here, I think, this time. Uh, but in the future, we may also do some things out into the community. Um, Jerry's over there, I think, promoting Canathon. Uh, but, uh, uh, and we'd have an opportunity to do that, too. Uh, but if you are if you uh, are a man and you like breakfast, uh, we'd encourage you to come. Uh, we'll have uh, we'll have food and some time to hang out together, and uh, I'll I'll have a devotion for us, and and we'll and then we'll do some things together and have some fun, and it'll be a good time. Uh, also, today is the last Sunday before our new members class starts next Sunday, immediately after church, uh, at my house. Uh, that'll be a great opportunity to get to know some other folks who are new, uh, to eat food at my house, and to uh, learn a bit more about the church if you're new. We've got 17 people so far signed up, 17 adults signed up so far for that class. If you'd like to make it 18 or 19 or 25 or however many, uh, we will take you. So, um, But I encourage you to sign up. Um, and participate in that. It's going to be a, an exciting time, a lot of fun. Uh, we meet from 12.30 to 2.30 for five weeks in a row, and uh, we, we address a different uh, aspect of church life uh, each week, and we eat some great food. Uh, I think next week will either be fried chicken or chili uh, with all the stuff that goes with that. So it'll be, it'll be great, and you'll enjoy it. I encourage you to participate in that. Uh, also, in association with that, one of the folks, uh, one of the folks who is new to our church here in the last uh, month or so, is Jessica Cantonwine. And Jessica's younger sister Emily has Down syndrome, and was with her family down in Florida and had a stroke. And so um, Jim didn't mention that this morning, but I want to mention that, and then we, I want to pray for Emily and her family. Uh, so if you would join with me in prayer. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray for Emily, this dear sister, who uh, has had a, a lot of health problems over the course of her life. And Father, I pray that you would uh, be faithful and demonstrate your faithfulness to Emily and to her family uh, to show them that you are a God of grace, a God of care, a God of love, who watches over uh, the least of these. And Father, I pray for strength uh, for Patty and for Dennis and for uh, Jessica. As I know, they're, they're all uh, concerned about Emily. And Father, I pray that you would uh, draw them close to your side, uh, give them encouragement and hope in the midst of a really tough time. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in Genesis chapter 10. We're actually going to go a little further than we normally do, and we're going to do more than one chapter this week uh, and get into Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. Uh, but this is going to be the last week we're going to spend in Genesis before we go into Second Peter starting next week. And uh, Second Peter is all about 
how to live as a Christian in the last days. And uh, the book of the New Testament begins with the Acts of the Apostles, and it ends with the Acts of the Apostate. And that is, the, that is what Second Peter is about, identifying false teaching, uh, learning to live as a Christian uh, when times are tough and the last days are upon us. Now, I don't know necessarily that Jesus is returning this week or this year or in the next five. I'm not going to give you uh, 11 reasons why Jesus will return in 2011 or anything like that. Uh, but I do think that, um, that the world uh, as, it, as it exists is getting nearer and nearer uh, to the return of Christ. And uh, so we want to uh, focus on how should we live as believers uh, as the return of Christ draws nearer each day. Uh, every day that, um, that we are alive is one day closer to Jesus coming back. And as Paul said, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And uh, so we want to look at that. We're going to spend some time there. And when we wrap up first, uh, Second Peter, rather, uh, we'll come back to Genesis and we'll pick up Abraham's story. And then we'll take another break and then we'll come back and pick up uh, Jacob's and Isaac's story. And then we'll take a break and come back and pick up Joseph and his brothers. Um, Genesis is a long book, so I don't want to just grind it out for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, I don't want anybody to get, uh, to get too bogged down, but uh, we want to take some breaks and, uh, and keep everybody excited about where we're going and what we're doing. So Genesis so far has been, has been a big trip. Uh, we've seen the creation of the world out of nothing. We've seen the creation of human beings in the image of God. We've seen the establishment of the first marriage, which is created to reflect uh, the nature of God. We've seen uh, the fall of man and all of the tragedy that starts to result from that. You see the first fratricide uh, with Cain murdering his brother Abel and the establishment of the first civilization of, uh, devoted apart from God. And then you see uh, this spiral of, uh, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And, and people lived a long time, but they still died. They still lived under the penalty of death. And then you see evil advance throughout the world in such a way that God decides that the only way to rid the world of evil is to rid the world of people and start over. And he does. He starts over with a man and his family to whom he has given grace so that they come into a relationship with him. And he saves them out of that wicked world in a boat along with a portion of the animals. And then they start over. And it starts out really good. Noah makes sacrifices and he honors God and God makes a covenant with him and it's good. And everything seems to be, oh, this is a great start. And then we find. As we saw last week, Noah naked and drunk in his tent like a hillbilly on vacation. And then you've got uh, his son, Ham, dishonoring him while he's in the midst of his sin. And a curse pronounced on Ham and the, and the descendants that will come from him through the line of Canaan who are going to dishonor their father just as uh, Ham dishonored his father. And things are starting to get bad again. And this week, what we're going to see is what happens as the nations begin to form out of the descendants of Noah. 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and how that goes. And what will happen? Will people turn to the Lord and follow him as Noah did, or will they start to spiral down once more? When we left off last week, it was not very hopeful. In fact, Noah's story ends just exactly like everybody else's story in Genesis chapter 5. And he lived so and so many years, and then he died. And so it's very much on a downbeat note as we begin chapter 10, because it seems like even though God has started over, we're right back to where we started before the flood with men, with men participating in sin and then dying. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Those of you who have small children or are going to, you might want to pick up some names out of this chapter. All right. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittim, and the Rodanim. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. Now, Noah's sons have sons of their own, and as these sons have children, they start forming tribes and nations and start spreading out. The tribe of Gomer is the people group that become the Scythians of Central Asia. Uh, You see them mentioned uh, in the New Testament. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian. Those are the people from Central Asia. I'm not exactly sure what tribes develop out of that, but these are the folks uh, that would be part of the golden horde that invades Europe under Genghis Khan. <laughs> These are part of those people. Uh, Gomer and his descendants. Uh, Magog is the land that's uh, between modern-day Armenia and Cappadocia in what is today eastern Turkey. Uh, Madai is thought to be a reference to the ancient Medes who with the Persians formed one of the largest world empires. Uh, Javan is, Hebrew, is the Hebrew word for the, the Hellenic peoples of western Turkey. Uh, the people from what would have been Ionia and around the, th- the time of the ancient Greek empire. Uh, the people that would have uh, built, as an example, the city of Troy, if you remember your Homer from high school. Uh, If you read the Iliad or the Odyssey and you finally got Ulysses all the way back home, he was coming back home from the area where these people were from. Uh, Tubal and Meshach, we're not sure exactly where those were. We know that they were military kingdoms to the north of Israel. Uh, Tiras, we think, could be a a reference to the the sea peoples of the Aegean Sea, uh, which is around Greece. Uh, we're not exactly sure. Um, so the sons of the sons of Gomer are the Central Asian tribes. The sons of Javan become the Sea Peoples of the Mediterranean, and on west to Spain. Uh, Tarshish is Spain, 
uh, you know, the Kittim and the Rodanim, we're not exactly sure what these groups of people are, but these are the people who are spreading west and north of Israel across the, Mediter- the northern Mediterranean. Uh, so the sons of Japheth, in other words, are the ancestors of the European and Western Asian people groups. Uh, they're the people to the north and the west of Israel. Let's move on now to the sons of Ham. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Mizraim was the father of the Luddites, Anamites, Lehabites, Naphtuites, Pathrushites, Calistites, from whom the Philistines came, and the Kaphtarites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn. And of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. And later the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. Now, the sons of Ham form the tribes of the Middle East and North Africa. The Cushites uh, very likely spread out across South Arabia and into the area that forms present-day southern Egypt and Sudan and Ethiopia. Most likely today's sub-Saharan Africans, your black Africans, descend from Cush and spread along the coast and across the country uh, to all parts of that continent. These are the sons of Cush. Uh, the, also from, from, uh, from Ham are the Babylonians and the Assyrians through Cush. Uh, Nimrod, that we'll meet in a minute, is a Cushite. Uh, Mizraim is Egypt. And from that part of the world spread the tribes across North Africa all the way to Morocco and that part of the world. And they spread into Crete. And from there come the Philistines. Uh, we're not sure where Put is. Not exactly. It might be Libya. We're not sure. Uh, but we do know that uh, where Canaan is, and Canaan is that area uh, that later becomes the land of Israel, and it's populated by the Canaanites. And you'll notice that in the middle of this genealogy, there's a sudden break, and we find this little story about Nimrod. Now, you may have thought that Nimrod is just a name that you give somebody when they do something foolish. Okay, like, nice going, Nimrod. Um, but actually, it's the name of a, uh, of a person, a historical person, who is descended in the line of Cush, the son of Ham. And the, the name Nimrod is significant, just like many of the other names in Genesis. 
His name is significant. It's related to the Hebrew word for rebellion. And and he has been traditionally understood as founding the first civilizations which are devoted to rebellion against God. And he founds a couple of the really nasty ones. The Babylonians and the Assyrians descend from Nimrod. And they also become the Akkadians, who are another of the major early world empires. They're a fearsome people. And Nimrod was a fearsome dude. He, he is described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, traditionally, the Babylonian and Assyrian kings that descend from this man, one of the things that they did was hunted lions on foot with spears. Now, I have heard about some of these good old boys down in Texas hunting wild pigs and stuff with spears, and that actually sounds kind of fun. I'd actually kind of like to do that. Um, But the idea of lions, that crosses the line from brave on into stupid in my mind. A, A lion will kill you readily, and yet many of these guys not only did this, they did it regularly. You know, we killed 40 lions today. You know, 500-pound animal with teeth and claws and a bite that's big enough to put a Cape Buffalo down, I'll assure you, will can take care of you without a problem. But this guy was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He was someone who probably initiates this tradition of the Assyrian and Babylonian kings who did this kind of thing. This is a guy with steel in his spine, in other words. And he forms some of the first rebellious civilizations. In fact, we're going to meet the one, one of the ones that he founds uh, in chapter 11. They're a fearsome people. After Nimrod, we get more information on the other sons of Ham. He is the father of the Philistines, who later oppress and trouble Israel. He's the, he's the man from whom Goliath descends, if you remember Goliath from later on. Uh, We also meet Canaan, who's another one of the sons of Ham. And you meet all these tribes, you know, the the Sidonians, who formed the city at Tyre and Sidon, uh, from from where there was uh, the first centers of Baal worship. Um, You're going to see that later on in your Old Testament, if you keep that going. Uh, the Hittites, the Jebusites. The Jebusites are the people who found the city of Jabus, which later becomes known as Jerusalem. The Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, Zemorites, and Hamathites, and Mosquitobites. Um, you know, these folks, right? These tribes that take over the land of Canaan. And you notice that what's also mentioned is that these guys go from Sidon to Gerar. I'm not sure where that is, but it's from the north end of Canaan to the south end, and then, and then east from the Mediterranean all the way over to where? Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, we said that Ham dishonors his father Noah, and Noah pronounces a curse on who? Canaan, the son of Ham, and he is going to dishonor the name of his father, Ham, in the same way, because from Canaan's 
sons are going to come some of the most immoral people that ever lived, the Canaanites. And part of them are going to be the men of Sodom and Gomorrah that we're going to meet as we come back to Genesis later. These are nasty, nasty people that descend from Ham um, through, the, uh, through his son Canaan. Uh, by the way, let me just take a minute and say, why is all this in here? God could have, if he wanted, given us a very straightforward account. Noah's sons had sons, and one of his sons was Shem, and, and, and Shem had a number of sons. Uh, one of them was Eber, and from Eber come the Hebrews, and from uh, among, among the sons of Eber was one particular dude named Abraham. End of story. Skip chapter 10, skip chapter 11, go to chapter 12. Why is he doing all this? Because what he is wanting to do is to give us the details so that people understand where all of this is coming from and, and who came from where and where did these people arise and why are they the way that they are. Uh, this last week, my daughter, Sarah, had to do an ancestry project for school, and they had to come up with dates all the way to, uh, all the way back to 1800, uh, what was happening in your family back then. So this being the age of the internet, I got myself a free trial to Ancestry.com and plugged it up and got my ancestry traced all the way back to the 1600s. Uh, and some Englishmen and some Irishmen who took up with some Indian women uh, of the Shawnee and the Cherokee and the Creek. And, and it's pretty interesting. You know, you can find all this historical documents and so forth and, um, and where people came from. Now, this, to read it as, as people in, the, in 2011, looking back on all this, where we don't know where some of these people groups and, and places even are, we look at that and go, this is kind of not really exciting. Um, but God is writing a history for his people, and he wants them to have an understanding of the wider world for a very specific reason and wants them to see why he has to do what he does. Uh, because what you, what you start to see is the spread of nations, and as nations spread out, they start to not be more devoted to God, but more rebellious against Him. Let's move on. Sons of Shem. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. So Shem was the middle boy. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber, sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Meshech. Arphaxad was the brother, brother of was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almodad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jareth. Hadaran, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, 
Havila and Jobab, all these were sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and, and languages in their territories and nations. Now, the sons of Shem were getting to now more relevant to Israel because the Israelites are, are Semite or Shemite, if you will, people. Uh, from, she, from Shem are descended the tribes of uh, the Middle East, the Arabs, the Arab tribes, and the, of course, the tribe of Israel that comes through Jacob later on. And all these people are descended from Eber, who is the, orig, the originator of the name Hebrew. Where does that come from? It comes from Eber in this genealogy. Uh, we also meet this fellow named Peleg, and the, the note there on him is that in his time, the earth is divided. Now, scholars debate as to what that is a reference to. Does that mean that in his day, the continents were divided uh, when they were all one originally? Or does that mean uh, in his day, the nations began to divide according to language? Because that's what we're going to see in chapter 11, is a division according to languages. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, that's for someone smarter than me to figure out. Uh, but what we do see is as these nations and tribes start to spread out, uh, they're making some choices. And then you get the rest of this account, chapter 10, 32, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 32, down through verse uh, 8 of chapter 11. Let's look at the Tower of Babel. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as men moved eastward, they found a, a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. The Tower of Babel story is a bit of a flashback uh, to an earlier to earlier events because it's, I think, uh, a flashback back to uh, people who are um, who are on the earth at the time at, in the middle of some of these genealogies. Moses is recording all of this for the nation of Israel, and he's drawing out for them where these nations have come from. And so he draws out the genealogy far enough to identify all the tribes. But the Tower of Babel, I think, happens around the time of Peleg, 
the son of Eber, the, the descendant of Shem. And Peleg is five generations after Noah, uh, five recorded generations. But remember, there's no Hebrew word for patrilineal descendant, you know, so you don't have other than son. And so it says so-and-so was the son of, well, uh, in the Bible, that can mean a direct son, that can mean grandson, that could mean 10 generations removed. He's the descendant of so-and-so. So we don't know if it's specifically five direct generations after Noah, but it's five recorded generations after Noah. And it's relative, in other words, a relatively short period of time. And as the nations begin to rise from Noah's sons, so does their rebellion against God. At this point, there's still one there's still one uh, language, one dialect. Everybody understands each other. We think that the that the um, the ark lands in the mountains on the eastern part of Turkey, and then people begin to spread east from there. In fact, the Bible says they traveled to the east and they found this plain in Shinar, and they decide to build a city there, and they're going to be all together in one civilization. We're not going to uh, spread out over the whole earth, as God had said. We're going to build ourselves a place right here, and we're going to stay right here, and we're going to start building a tower, a tower that will reach up to heaven and will make us famous all over the whole earth, and we'll have a name for ourselves. And this is probably the area that we know as ancient Sumer. Uh, if, you've, if you've read your world history, you remember the Sumerians who have the first recorded writing that we can find. And also they have these pyramid-like structures. They're called ziggurats. And they're a stepped pyramid that goes up, and they've got a little temple at the top. And they viewed these places, the Sumerians, in their recorded writings, they viewed these places as a place where they had direct access in this little temple at the top to God. And we think that, that this particular place, which later becomes known as Babylon, which means the gate of God, is the first place where pagan religion is founded, where people are going to, by their own effort, work their way up into relationship with God. And they depicted that in their architecture. In fact, you can find this kind of architecture all over the world. You find it in the early Egyptian pyramids. You find it in Central America among the Mayans. You find it in Sumer. And all of them have these steps up the side, and all of them have a temple at the top, and you're going to ascend through your own effort all the way up to God. And I'm going to get myself into relationship with God by hook or by crook, but by my own effort, most importantly. And so they, they, they called the place Bob L, the gate of God. And God decides to take, the, take a look at this. So interestingly, two times in the text, it says that God has to come down to see it. 
They're going, they say they're going to build up all the way to God. He says, I've got to come down a ways to see what you're doing. Twice, he emphasizes that. Because the thing is, is that no matter what we do in false religion, and you can come up with a whole list, and people have, of any kind of false religious belief, it's always a list of stuff you're supposed to do, right? And as you do these things, as you check off all the boxes and get all your, you know, brownie points or whatever they're handing out that particular day, you build yourself your little tower all the way up to God. But no matter how tall you build it, guess what? God has still got to come down to look at your pathetic excuse for religious system that you've got going. Because... The only way a person comes into relationship with God is if God comes down to you and condescends to make himself known and brings you by his grace into relationship with him. He brings you up. You don't build yourself up to him. You can't. You can't get tall enough. It would be like if, if you, in fact, the distance between us and God as sinners is so great, it would be as if I said to you, uh, in order to come into relationship with God, you have to be able to throw a baseball to the moon. Well, throw as hard as you want. I mean, go out there, you know, get after it. In fact, Get somebody else to throw it for you. I mean, get Nolan Ryan out of retirement. He can probably throw it a lot further than you, right? But guess what? No matter how far you can throw it, there's still a vast amount of distance between you and it. And it's the same thing here. That no matter how tall they build, are they in relationship with God? No. In fact, what they're doing is they're building themselves a religious system. which wants to be in relationship with God, but doesn't want to be in relationship with God on his terms. And so what you find instead is not God, but all kinds of other spiritual realities and forces and beings who are happy to accommodate you. And they start to go by names like Molech, and Chemosh, and Baal, and if I'm not being too politically correct, incorrect, Allah. You can find a whole host of false gods that are out there that are happy to accommodate you, and they find some. And they build this up. In fact, Babylon becomes the first, this name of this place becomes the first center for pagan worship of all the hosts of heaven all of the creatures all of the things which are not god but which you can find a demon be very accommodating to get you to worship and so god decides that what he's going to do is he's going to limit the amount of evil that people can accomplish all in one spot he's like a, a teacher uh, if, if you are a teacher and you have four little boys back in the back you know, you got four, like, fourth-grade boys back in the back, you know, and they're, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to split them up, and you're going to cut down the amount of evil in your classroom by about 75%. <laughs> because, 
Four little boys on their own can be plenty evil, right? But four little boys together can be more evil. And so you split them up. You put one in this corner, one in that corner, one up here, one up here. You know, you put one maybe right up next to your desk, the ringleader, you know. Um, You divide up the people, And that's what God does. Only he doesn't do it by sticking them physically in different places. He just decides we're going to give them all different languages. And then the ones that can communicate will band together, but they'll be in little bitty groups. And so everybody's working to build their little pagan city in rebellion against God, founded by Nimrod the Babylonian, first Babylonian, Nimrod. And they're going to build their little pagan civilization based on false religion. And God says, okay, we'll split you all up and we'll cut down on the amount of evil you can accomplish together. And so you're speaking, let's say, English, and all of a sudden you're speaking Pashtun or Malay or Spanish. I mean, these are modern languages, but you get the idea. All of a sudden, you're speaking a different language. You've got to go find the people that speak the same as you so you can have some people that you're relating with and understanding. And people, as they begin to have different languages, begin to have different cultures. And then as they begin to have different cultures, they begin to be in conflict with each other, so they start to spread out and get separated from one another so that they don't all band together and become so evil that God has to destroy them all as he did with the flood. And God is going to spread them out. And God calls the place where they were Babel, which means confusion. You get a little Hebrew play on words. It's not the gate of God anymore. It's the place where confusion took place. And he brings down the amount of evil. And they wanted to make a name for themselves and to build up a place for themselves and to reach themselves up to God. You're going to see in chapter 11 that God is going to pick one little guy, one little Aramean, who's a worshiper of the moon god, and is going to save him, and he's going to make his name great. And instead of people trying to get their way up to God, he's going to come down and make himself known and establish a nation that is going to redeem the entire world and be a blessing to the entire planet. And God, in, in, this is the, the reason we're stopping here is that this is the last place where God is working with the whole world. And what happens is in chapter 1 through 11, you've got God working his plan with the whole world, and then he takes a detour to found the nation of Israel and to entrust them with the scriptures and the knowledge of him. And they are to carry that knowledge back to the Gentiles. They fail, and then the Messiah comes. And out of the people who believe in and accept the Messiah, both Jews and Gentiles, the entire world then becomes part of God's plan again to reach the entire world and to bring them into relationship with God who came down and made himself known. Now, uh, I'm going to wrap this up here. A couple things that... You may look at this passage and you may go, this is lots of genealogy, might be interesting to somebody, but not to me. How does this blessing my life? 
what is the significance of all of this text? And I'll grant you that it's a little bit tougher in this particular passage to find personal relevance for you than it might be in some other context in your, in your Bible. But the things that are written in the past, as Romans says, are written here to teach us some things. And one of the things it's meant to teach us is, is this, that God hates religion and he hates proud people. And at Babylon, you have both. The people who gathered on the plains of Shinar to build Babylon are creating their own religious system so they can get themselves by their own effort up to God. And they're doing it not for the sake of relationship with God, but as a means of making a name for themselves. And the Bible says over and over and over and over again that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes proud and he demonstrates it here he opposes them in their pride and he opposes them in their false religion he says you cannot get up to me i will come down to you and that's the only way that relationship with god ever happens is that god out of his holiness and out of his love chooses to make himself known to us but you pick a religious system, you, whatever one you want, Mormonism, Hinduism, uh, Roman Catholicism, what have you. You've all, they're all the same at bottom. They come down to two letters, D-O, do. Do this and you'll be in relationship with God. Sacrifice this goat. Uh, you know, spin this prayer wheel. Complete your five pillars, whatever. Make sure you go to confession, get absolution from the priest, what have you, okay? And I'm not trying to pick on anybody in particular. I'm just saying they all come down to the same kind of thing. If you're a Buddhist, walk the noble eightfold path. You've all got, they've all got their lists. Do this and you will be in relationship with God. Christianity is spelled very, very differently. D-O-N-E, done that God has done everything that is necessary to establish relationship with us. And it is insulting to him, and he hates any belief which says that I, by my own effort, can get my way into relationship with God. I can't. I'm a sinner. But God has done everything. He has sent his own son, in fact, to live on the earth as a human being and to die in my place and to be raised from the dead to give me the new life that I can't get any other way. Second thing, God is not done with humanity yet. Why did God bring the judgment on Babel? Because his judgment on language allows his plan to proceed. He, they're wanting to make a name for themselves um, and to form one people and to do it under their own power without God. And as we see later on, beginning with Abraham, God is going to make a name for him. How many of you know who Mizraim is before you got to today? Probably not many of you. But God makes a name for one guy that he calls. And out of his descendants, he's going to form a people. And out of a great descendant of his, there's going to be one 
people of God that is formed. People that, repre are, that represent every language and tongue and people group. Amen? Standing around the throne of God who has brought them up to himself. Let's pray.